2: This is
3: the Ayers Rock National Park where the attack took place on Sunday night. The Chamberlains were preparing a barbecue 20 meters from their campsite with baby Azaria and her four-year-old brother Regan asleep inside the tent. To the parents' horror, a wild dog, probably a dingo, walked into the tent looking for food and left the tent with something in its mouth. When the parents rushed to the tent to investigate, the baby was gone from her cot. Her blankets were torn and there were bloodstains nearby.
2: I'm Narelda Jacobs, and you're listening to 10 News First Person. It's been 40 years since the disappearance of baby Azaria Chamberlain captivated the world. And I just yelled, I, there wasn't time to go and tell people, I just yelled out, has anyone got a torch? then dingo's got my baby. Her mother Lindy's arrest for the murder of her daughter has become one of Australia's most famous legal stories. It's also been described as Australia's most notorious miscarriage of justice.
4: As soon as I saw the jury in the jury box on that very first day and they started laughing hysterically at something the prosecution said, I I knew that the Chamberlains were going to be convicted.
2: It took more than three decades for the truth to be recognised. It
5: never entered my mind that anything other than a dingo taking the baby had occurred.
6: Everybody knew what had happened. Dingoes had taken away Azaria Chamberlain.
2: National Affairs Editor Hugh Rimington with this story.
4: This was the scene reenacted by police at a campsite at Uluru, where nine-week-old Azaria Chamberlain disappeared from her parents' tent in August 1980. Was she taken by a wild dingo or murdered by her mother, Lindy?
1: It was trial by jury. I mean, when you listen to the summing up by the judge at the time, he virtually directed the jury to give a no guilty verdict, but they didn't.
3: I believe a dingo took Azaria on the night of the 17th of August 1980. We've talked about it a lot since then, and I am confirmed in my mind, as Lindy is, that that is really what took place. What happened after the dingo took her, we still don't know, and that is what I'd
7: really like to get to the bottom of.
3: Even people born years after the disappearance of Azaria Chamberlain know something of the legend. A baby goes missing from a campsite at what then was known as Ayres Rock. Her mum sees a dingo moving from the tent. No-one at the scene disbelieves her, but opinion changes. In the end, it takes 32 years, four inquests, a criminal trial, two appeals and a royal commission to confirm what Lindy Chamberlain had said all along. A dingo had taken her baby.
5: It was an accident waiting to happen, basically, and unfortunately it happened to poor little Lazaria.
3: Never in Australia, not before or since, has so much money, so much anger, so much prejudice been expended in pursuit of a crime that never happened. Public opinion started setting early against Lindy and her husband, Michael Chamberlain. Journalist Malcolm Brown explains.
4: When the news broke, people raised their eyebrows and uh, within a few days there were questions. You know, surely there's something else in it. The performance of Michael Lindy Chamberlain on television did them no good. As I always said, there's no rule to say how people should react to traumatic circumstances, but their supposedly calm and uh, nature, uh, their matter-of-fact way of dealing with it, did not go down well with the public. Coming to the first coroner's inquest, which began in December 1980, The official mood was well in favour of the Chamberlains and the coroner, Dennis Barrett, had little difficulty in finding that a dingo had taken the baby. And that was supposed to be the end of it. But in 1981, that was when the leaked-out reports of the Cameron report from Britain that there had been a murder, that was all leaked out to the media and that set the whole country ablaze with speculation and hostile comment towards the Chamberlains.
3: It seems that there became a time, definitely, when the majority view in Australia was that Lindy Chamberlain was guilty. Yeah.
4: Well, by the time the second inquest came, we'd had we'd heard from various reports that a young adult hand had been found on the jumpsuit. We uh, heard speculation the baby might have been decapitated. Uh, We heard about baby's blood all through the car, and by then uh, those people were nodding their heads, and by the time the second inquest came along, uh, it was virtually a foregone conclusion that they would be committed for trial.
3: What do you make of the media's role, the journalists at the time?
4: Well, the the media um, went along with the public flow, and uh, the media, of course, have always been very, very keen to get close to the police because normal circumstances, the police are the source of the real news that you want and get in buddy's buddy with the police and they will give you stuff that is very good news. And uh, there was a a feeling among journalists that the Chamberlains were guilty. I remember uh, when the trial came in uh, 1982, I purposely selected a motel in Darwin which is far removed from where the bulk of the journalists were staying because I did not want to be influenced by what they thought.
3: Was there something else, you know, almost a sense of feeding the mob?
4: Yes, I think the Northern Territory Police felt humiliated by the uh, coroner's inquest as did the Northern Territory Government and the National Parks and Wildlife Service. The police were wanted to keep going with the inquiry because there were some questions left unanswered by the first verdict. The coroner found that there had been human intervention in relation to the disposal of clothing. Well, that is a legitimate subject of continuing police inquiry. The police kept the jumpsuit. Then when uh, Kenneth Brown, the odontologist, said he wanted to go and see his mentor, Professor James Cameron, in London, and he wanted to take the jumpsuit, with him, they were very very willing to give him the jumpsuit to take to Cameron. So the the, the police were, uh, they felt quite jilted by it and, and there were some very friendly reporters who were keen to egg them on to give them good information. I rang uh, a reporter on the Northern Territory News before the second inquest and he said, oh there's an 11 minute window when Lindy could have done it, slipped into the car, cut the baby's throat and then come back to the campsite as though nothing had happened. 11 minute, minute window of opportunity. They worked it out and they briefly will told the reporters what had happened.
3: What they said happened.
4: What they said had happened and what they said had happened and uh, uh, there was a certain amount of uh, a desire to justify themselves.
3: We have a case where there was no motive was ever really offered up for why a, a mum who had no evidence of postnatal depression would kill her own child and particularly do it and then return to the campsite with her mood unchanged. This is the bit which is really mysterious to me is how an almost a tidal wave of public opinion started to run that she was a woman capable of quote, sacrificing a baby in the wilderness. Well,
4: the, the sacrifice in the wilderness was a, a mistaken interpretation of the name of Zaria that, that got around before the first inquest. But it did uh, feed the feeling that the Seventh-day Adventists were somehow different from the rest of Christendom. That they had a different Sabbath. That they uh, they didn't eat meat and they were kept themselves apart and so on. There was a new world religion rather than old world religion. So that fit into the the hysteria as well.
3: Would you describe it as some have as a mob lynching
4: Yes, I, th- I think it was a mob lynching. Uh, the uh, trials in 1982 was shifted from Alice Springs to Darwin in the uh, vain hope that uh, they would get it away from Alice Springs where there was such a mood of uh, against the Chamberlains. Of course, they went into Darwin, which was absolutely seething with uh, speculation about Chamberlains. There was the famous uh, incidents at the beginning of the trial where people walking along uh, with T-shirts uh, proclaiming the incidents, the dingo. But there was certainly a huge number of people in Darwin, most of which Darwin believed the Chambers were guilty.
3: There was a requirement, of course, it being a jury trial, that there be a jury that did not have opinions about it.
4: Well, that was virtually impossible because uh, everything had come out in the the media uh, and uh, it was impossible to find anyone who had not heard about the trial and had uh, not formed an opinion. As soon as I saw the jury in the jury box on that very first day, And they started laughing hysterically at at something the prosecution said. I I knew that the Chamberlain's were going to be convicted.
3: What did you make of the Chamberlain's?
4: Well, Michael and Lindy were... I think that nobody could have been less prepared for the trauma they went through than Michael and Lindy Chamberlain. Michael was an intelligent fellow, but uh, rather uh, gormless in some ways. Neither of them had been exposed to the wider world. They'd been closeted in this little Seventh-day Adventist world, and they were thrust into something that was quite beyond the knowledge or the experience of either of them, and they were just blown out. They didn't know what to do.
3: When the jury came back, it was said that the final directions from the judge were certainly not towards conviction.
4: Now, the judge had formed an opinion based on the uh, evidence that the Chamberlains were innocent. He had not heard anything that would indicate to him that they were guilty. The final point he made to the jury was that the baby had cried out when Lindy was at the campsite, when on the crown scenario she should have been dead, and there was an independent witness, one of the campers who also heard the baby cry, so that corroborated what Lindy said, and that was why she went back to the tent to look for the baby and found that the baby is gone so so that was what happened.
3: And yet the jury came in what happened?
4: Well the jury came in and uh, they'd spent oh what six hours I think it was some time and uh, the foreman said looked at them and said guilty and Lindy reacted as though she'd been shot. "Ah." And then the judge recovered from what might have been a shock to him he said well he had no option but to sentence lindy to life imprisonment with hard labor and uh, he would de- he postponed his sentence to michael at that point he left the chamber and the people started leaving the courtroom the jury started filing out and i looked towards them and i said you pack of bastards in a in rather a raised voice and uh, that was I ever heard and reported on and uh, I should not have said it because, uh, because juries have a difficult job to do and they should not be subjected to abuse. Do you still believe it? I I believe that the jury were not terribly objective and uh, I had a couple of friends who knew one of the jurors and he blabbed them each weekend he saw them and kept me appraised of what was happening in the jury room so... After the the prosecution finished the case, they decided they were guilty and they were just interested to hear what the defence had to say. They were quite uh, dismissive of Barry Botcher because the level of detail that he went into, scientific detail, was above their heads and instead of trying to grasp it, they said, oh, he's an idiot. Well, he wasn't an idiot at all, but they simply didn't understand what he was saying. Uh, And that was the crux of the whole thing and raised the issue of uh, just whether lay people should ever be asked to try to assess complex scientific evidence like that.
3: Lindy Chamberlain's parents, Cliff and Avis Murchison, live in the small coastal town of Nowra in southern New South Wales. Both were at their daughter's home in Mount Isa when the family car was unpacked, and both saw evidence of dingo tracks. Lindy herself referred to it in her evidence at the trial, but Mrs Murchison wasn't called. She was told that her evidence, as the mother of the accused, would carry no weight. Barrister and businessman John Bryson researched and wrote the definitive account of the case with his book Evil Angels. So what drew him to
6: it in the first place? I watched it like everybody else at the beginning on the television and the question really that interested me was why is the world so ready to believe about the Seventh-day Adventists that they were a religious group that would possibly sacrifice the child. I'd known some Seven day Adventists as a boy, and they were very ordinary people. But we were really very ready to believe all sorts of things about them. And so my interest in the case was not, is she guilty or not? But why are we ready to believe? these arguments against her.
3: We're going back 40 years now. Do you feel that at the heart of the pursuit of Lindy Chamberlain was religious prejudice?
6: I do, and I can understand it, because the complexion of the Chamberlains was not endearing. One is looking at people who believed that they were the chosen and that they were intrinsically holier than thou. And it does put... Australians particularly off to be confronted with that sort of thing. It does make us a bit angry.
3: So the depth of that faith that whatever had happened was God's will made them react in ways that seemed not to fit their story? Was that what the problem was?
6: Yes, it is. (laughs) The additional astounding piece of behaviour was that the Chamberlains didn't really understand early on what was happening to them. Sure, everything is God's will, but they didn't get any feeling of maliciousness, of entrapment. The rest of us could see it happening, but it was beyond them, which is not to say that's a fault. It was just part of the personality.
3: So if there was a malicious entrapment, who was doing the entrapping?
6: Remember that the scientists who had tested the blood that they said was found in the Chamberlain car, destroyed the artefacts that they were working on. It was only during the trial that everyone found out that the exhibits given at the trial were knock mock-up, that the original scientific slides had been destroyed, they said as a matter of routine, we always do this. Well, lawyers no doubt had told them to always do that. The rules in the American jurisdictions are quite different. If evidence is destroyed, the case is immediately thrown out. No <laughs> argument possible about it, just finished. Justice Murphy was cross that and argued for it in the High Court As did Justice Dean. But out of all the judges who were asked to analyse and evaluate the so-called scientific evidence, only those two could see that this was not scientific at all.
3: A lot of it hinged, it seemed, on the uh, forensic evidence that was given by Joy Cool, chiefly, that there was fetal haemoglobin, that is to say the blood of a very, very young child found in the passenger's stairwell part of the car. And she's admitted error subsequently. But are you saying that it was more than
6: error? I'm saying it was deliberate error. I think that such was the enthusiasm to get a conviction against the Chamberlains that any sense of fairness was suspended. And let's not forget that it's pretty easy to entrap the innocent. In fact, it's easier to entrap the innocent than it is the guilty. Uh, the guilty at least knows what could be put up against them. The innocent have absolutely no idea what is going on. And in fact, the way that the investigation was put was to keep the uh, Chamberlains and their lawyers and their scientists ignorant so that... <laughs> When the lawyers for the Chamberlains went to London to interview what they'd heard was uh, uh, scientists from from the jurisdictions there, the scientists turned them away and said, look, I'm sorry, we can't discuss this. Now, every scientist will no doubt tell you that secrecy disables science, that the, the findings must be... Held openly, the information must be open and must be capable of disproof. The investigating team made sure that could not happen. At what point
3: did you become personally convinced that the Chamberlains were innocent?
6: At the end of the trial, we suspected, many of us in the press group, suspected innocence all the way along. It was only at the end of the trial when everybody knew what evidence was fairly available to the jury, that they couldn't be convicted. And so the actual conviction came as a bombshell to all of us. What do you think happened there in the jury room? Oh, clearly it was the easiest case for a prosecutor to win. When we look back on the fact that all the world knew she was guilty... And we knew that she was guilty because the media and the television, particularly the television, had been leaked information to show how the uh, investigation was piling evidence up against them. We were covering that in television in real time. So there there was no possibility of any jury, however chosen to contain sceptics. There were no sceptics. We know that the
3: law is supposed to work in an ideal world, quarantined away from things like the gossip at the pub and from what's in a newspaper. A jury is supposed to be quarantined from such things. Was this perhaps the most telling lesson, that in fact there is no such quarantine, there is no separation between church and state, that members of a jury can be influenced by the talk and the chatter and the prejudices of a community?
6: Yes, I'm, I'm sure it proves that. It also shows the extent to which that sort of prejudice can disable the appellate uh, system. If there's anything that beggars belief, it's to watch the way in which the judges in the appellate courts were disabled by the propaganda.
3: Where was the propaganda coming from?
6: It was basically a police ploy to have the main media actors on side remember that to the extent it was stage managed that during the trial the media was uh, supplied with drugs that they wanted for example dope was readily available marijuana Uh, marijuana
3: being supplied by whom a member of the police force so members or a member of the police force was supplying marijuana to members of the journalists? Yes. Who were covering the trial? Yes. And why were they doing that?
6: To keep up the friendliest relations that they could organise. Do you think that that was done officially? Or? I, I think it was an arrangement between individuals.
3: But with partly the purpose to keep the journalists most warmly disposed towards the prosecution case, is that what you're
6: Absolutely saying? Absolutely warmly disposed, yes.
3: What was the effect of this propaganda on the public at large? I'm, I'm conscious that there are people around today who have no recollection of this, they weren't of the age, but I'm also aware that it was, it was enormous across the world and everyone spoke about it in Australia. What was the division, I suppose, of views in the Australian population at that time on the question of the guilt or innocence of Linda Chamberlain?
6: The division of polarization was about 80-20. And I remember that uh, the figure came out from, I think, uh, Fairfax, that they sold something like 60,000 more copies of a newspaper that featured a Chamberlain story. Tremendous interest in it. What
3: you're saying is that there becomes an overwhelming sense of guilt, so that the jury process has become completely subordinated to the popular view by that time.
6: And irrelevant,
3: yes. Not irrelevant to Lindy Chamberlain, as it turned out, <laughs> because they sent her <laughs> to jail, or the, the judge sent her to jail. Do you think that the jurors themselves would feel some sense of guilt about how things have turned out?
6: Certainly some of them, that's true. But solidarity amongst white folk in the Northern Territory in those days was palpable. They did stick together. I remember that it was quite a while before you could find a Northern Territory police member who might consider that uh, justice had failed.
3: One of the difficulties that was always there, in fact it's remarkable that there was a conviction given this difficulty, was that no motive was was at all put forward as to why she might have murdered her own 10-week-old baby. Why was that not essentially an eliminating factor in a trial when no one could coherently come up with an argument that she did it for this reason, or that she had any kind of reason.
6: The the prosecution put across to the, the jury, obviously, effectively, that it was not their job to provide any sort of reason behind the mother's action, that they were simply putting the other facts and the jury could accept or not the fact or not that they couldn't find or suggest a motive. Obviously, they accepted that.
3: The prosecution case was it was the dingo or it was Lindy Chamberlain. And so their arguments were all about essentially proving the dingo was innocent. Yes. And then attaching to that was the evidence that they put forward that there was evidence she had done it because there was blood inside the car, which there wasn't. And let's not
6: forget that the the case didn't begin with the death of the baby. The case began at about the time the baby was born. The rangers at uh, Ayers Rock had written to their superiors, warning them that they were looking at the possibility of a tragedy here, that the, the dingoes had become a bohemian class, and. Could be expected to attack, such that uh, Derek Roth, the chief ranger, said, babies and small children can be considered to be possible prey. And when the baby did disappear, Derek Roth's first thought was, God, it's finally happened. And it was at that time, at that place, that Everybody knew what had happened. Dingoes had taken away Azaria Chamberlain. That was then probably the last time that everybody clearly knew the facts. It became distorted thereafter.
3: Do you think at this distance Australia owes a debt of apology to... Lindy Chamberlain and the the late Michael Chamberlain, and not just the parents, but also those other siblings who were deprived of
6: of their mother. And uh, the campsite witnesses, because we'd never seen a case before in which, after a conviction, all of the eyewitnesses got together to mount public roadshows of their protest against the way the trial had proceeded. And I'll never see it again, but it was astonishing. So an apology should be due to those folk as well as to the Chamberlains.
3: Chester Porter QC was one of the great Australian barristers of the 20th century. His work at the Royal Commission helped put the truth beyond all doubt. Now 94, he never doubted, Lindy's innocence.
8: It's always struck me that if the dingo didn't take the baby, if the chamberlains had murdered the baby, it would have been found. Because everyone was looking everywhere for the baby. No. There's no reason to suspect that they would have murdered the baby anyhow. It was just, uh, everyone was terribly suspicious in those days. It's a strange thing that People were very anxious to believe she'd murdered her own child. If you think about it for a moment, if a baby is killed, the last person you think would do it was her own mother. And yet that fundamental question was just brushed aside in the Chamberlain case. to assumed that she did it. how did she do it? It's weird. The day after it happened, she was. Fronting the press, telling them all about it, in a most extraordinary way for a mother who lost a baby. It is a strange thing. Most mothers who lost a baby like that would cry and weep and what have you. The fact that she didn't, to most people, was beyond, they couldn't understand that. The only explanation was she'd done herself.
2: Looking for your next favourite podcast? Why don't you head over to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat.
4: Witnesses at the campsite described Lindy Chamberlain as a loving mother. One woman testified she heard Azaria cry at a point after the Crown claimed the child had been murdered by its mother.
3: Bobby Elston was the nurse at Ayers Rock at the time and the only medical professional in the area. It was nerve-wracking, she says, when she got the call, but in a way, she'd been expecting it.
5: I'd had a couple of incidents of dingoes one bitter little three-year-old boy in the ear, and uh, I'd heard of another child that had been dragged out of a car by a dingo. So to hear this, it was like my worst fear, my worst nightmare sort of come true. I had spoken to the head ranger about my fears, and he had put some signs up warning tourists not to feed the dingoes. On that evening, the policeman took me to the campsite and said, you know, I think the Chamberlains need some support. And that's where I first met Lindy and Michael and some of the other campers that were supporting them at the time. It was dark and it was cold and everyone was sort of trying to keep warm. I think Lindy had a blanket around her and Amy Whittaker was really comforting her. Michael was sort of pacing around a little bit. Obviously they were just trying to process the whole thing and they were afraid to move away from the camping ground because... You know, if they found the little baby, they wanted to be able to be found themselves so that they could be there with the baby. Amy Whittaker and Judy West, who were the witnesses through the whole trial, and they were campers. None of us knew each other before that night. And they were very concerned about the Chamberlains being really cold. And it was really cold. So because I knew the area, I went and found a hotel room for them. And then they didn't want to leave that area. Michael was like, how can the police find us if we're somewhere else? And I said, look, don't worry. We'll make sure the police know exactly where you are. And the police actually came and helped us move the Chamberlain family and all their belongings other than the tent which we left behind. And we transferred them all into one of the hotels. And that's where they stayed that night. There was no... Indication that there was any problem with anything that we were doing regarding the car. Nobody tried to stop me getting in. It was just the logistics of getting the family and their belongings into the hotel, that's all. There was nothing in that car that indicated to me anything was amiss. And it's only the suggestion of police over a long period of questioning that they sort of had this theory that the baby was killed in the car, but there was nothing. I I did not see anything at all to indicate anything had happened. It never entered my mind that anything other than a dingo taking the baby had occurred. Lindy, she couldn't have done it. These other children were bitten by dingoes and attacked by dingoes. It was an accident waiting to happen, basically. And unfortunately, it happened to poor little Lazaria. She could not get a fair trial because everybody, nearly everybody that you met thought she was guilty, except for the people that were actually there with her. Her life was changed and she had a terrible time. Her family had a terrible time and it was not necessary. It was bad enough that they lost their little Lazaria. And then all this other stuff happens to them. And it shouldn't have. It should never have happened. They should have believed her, believed that the dingo took the baby.
3: Also at the campsite that night was the Habie family. Stephen was just 11 years old, but he remembers it vividly.
7: There was my mum, dad, my sister and myself. And mum started preparing dinner. And what I noticed... Pretty soon after was a number of what could be described as mangy dogs or dingoes surrounding the camper van. One of the things I remember seeing was notices up in the toilet saying, do not feed the dingoes because there'd been a number of attacks on campers in the last couple of days and weeks. And then probably half an hour, maybe 40 minutes later, I remember hearing uh, Lindy Chamberlain uh, scream out, you know, a dingo's taken my baby, and then pretty much all hell broke loose. Dad went out to investigate and then came back and said, oh, something terrible's happened. It's a dangerous place. And, you know, for someone like myself, I I was frightened. I was quite scared. And then, you know, when the police arrived, the the local police, and they said, right, we're going to, you know, try and track down these, uh, you know, the animal that may have taken this area and then we'll shoot anything. I mean, that was pretty scary. From a, you know, a young lad... Coming from Box Hill South in Melbourne, it was quite surreal. Really, it underlined to me that the holiday had ended, what we had experienced or whatever was quite frightening and awful and terrible, and I I really just wanted to go home. The Northern Territory Police, they were Keystone Cops. You know, they were amateurs. In my view, they were gung-happy driving around, you know, bang, 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 you know, get your head down, you know, stay in the car, we, we're shooting everything. It was like, what in God's is going on? It was, it was something out of a, a, a terrible B-grade or Z-grade movie. It was an awful time, it was a terrifying time, because it was at night, there was a lot of shouting and, and yelling. It was a terrifying time. One of the things that we found troubling was when we got home, you know, we had visits from the um, Northern Territory detectives and Queensland Police that came down to interview Dad and, and Mum. Interestingly, they didn't want to interview my sister or myself, which I found really quite interesting and perhaps disturbing as well. Because I mean, we were there, we experienced it, and surely that you know, my sister and my and I would have had you know, easily have been able to provide you know, some extra information to the to the information that my parents were giving but also that people started to doubt what we were saying you know oh you know Lindy killed Azaria you know blah 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 so there was a lot of anguish and a lot of distress around the fact that a lot of our friends and acquaintances and others you know school friends and so on didn't believe what actually happened even to this day.
3: Lindy approached his dad, Murray Habie, asking for his help in the search.
1: We were inside our van and then this lady came over calling out something about, I need a torch. And I thought, this is strange. So I got out of the van and walked towards her. She would have been about, I suppose, 10, 15 metres away. And then she said, um, I need a torch. A-, a dingo's taken my baby. And of course, I was not every day you get confronted with that and I thought... Is this real and um, I said how do you know and she said I put the baby in the tent and when I was coming back to the tent I saw a dingo running away from the tent and when I looked in the tent the baby Azaria wasn't there I said uh, where did it go or which way to go and she pointed up the sand dune and I said I'll go with the torch she was upset But she wasn't crying and wasn't panicking. I thought, well, she's a pretty brave lady to have it all together. I went up onto the sand dune and there was a dingo track that looked very fresh and looked deeper than the others and came from the direction of the tent. Probably followed it for about um, a couple of hundred metres and then it put its load down on the sand and you could see a pattern of a knitted garment quite clearly in the torchlight. Oh, there was a a wet spot beside it, so I couldn't work out whether it was blood or saliva. And then you could tell it had picked it up and kept going. The next morning I got up, then I thought, oh, I wonder if the tracks are still there. So, yeah, sure enough, in the search, they hadn't actually gone to the top of the dune, so all the tracks on the ridge of the dune were still there. My big problem was I didn't take a photo of it. And that's one thing I think about it, Because of course, the other thing I think about is the fact that I was never believed which was a bit of a shock because I sort of always prided prided myself on being an honest person and I found it hard to come to terms with the fact that they didn't believe me. I did show it to other people. I showed it to the policeman and the ranger and they had two Aboriginal blokes come up and try and find the trail. I thought it was very poorly run. I thought if I had done what they did, I would have got hauled over the coals because I... It took them too long, took them over an hour. Everybody was nearby, a lot of people were prepared to help, but it took a long time before the policemen and the ranger to get their act together to organise something. You know, the fact that I could go out there on the hillside for an hour and a half before they'd organize the search, I thought, that's pretty poor. When I look back, I think um, it was unfortunate that what happened in the sense that Lindy got accused of something she didn't do. We felt, everyone felt a lot of sympathy for her because, you know, she'd lost her baby and no one doubted her. Now the police didn't doubt her, the ranger didn't doubt her, and no one else there doubted her. It wasn't until we got home a fortnight later in Melbourne that we found the papers were saying we're accusing her of being a murderer and we thought, well, where did that come from? There's no suggestion of that up at The Rock. And then before the first inquest, got a phone call from the sergeant of the box police station to come in and there and i went in there and talked to him about it and filled in this questionnaire and he said oh the information you've got you, you'll go to the inquest but that didn't happen and the second inquest came and nothing happened either it wasn't until the trial and then one saturday morning two northern territory policemen arrived and at our doorstep and said um, they wanted to take me to Box Hill Police Station to interview me and I said yeah fair enough so I answered all their questions and told them what I did and saw and all that sort of stuff but they um, they'd already made their mind up they said oh this is a murder inquiry we're really only interested in uh, collecting evidence <laughs> that supports that theory and of course you know I, I just couldn't believe them I thought, I thought to myself that that's not the way police should behave. And they didn't even give me a statement, a copy of the statement. And I never got one until after the trial. It was trial by jury. I mean, when you listen to the summing up by the judge at the time, he virtually directed the jury to let her, to give a no, no guilty verdict, but they didn't.
3: A week after Rosaria disappeared, Wally Goodwin and his family were walking along the base of Uluru when his wife spotted something.
9: Well, we'd been exploring around in a number of areas, Margot, myself and the two children. Margot was up on to the right of me with Joanne at an elevated area and she said to me, what's that in front of you? Well, I couldn't see what she was referring to because there was a big boulder there. And when I came around the corner... Straight away I could see it was uh, because we knew they were looking for uh, baby's grey suit and uh, a disposable nappy and there it was in front of us, bloodstained around the collar area. So I I had to look further in and there was obviously dingo layers there and then I came back out and I said well we've got to go around to the police and report it. Constable Morris was on the radio when I walked in and he was saying that they were calling off the search until any other further evidence came forward. And when he finished, I said, I believe I've found the baby's clothes you're looking for. And his reply was, what makes you think that? And I said, well, it's a baby's gray suit. It's heavily blood-stained, And I believe that's what you're looking for. And then he asked, where did I find it? And I said, well, it's down near the moss face area of the rock. He said, well, that's the opposite area to where we've been looking. And when I took him in, the first thing he did was bent down and picked the clothing up. Well, he must have seen the startled look on my face. I knew not to touch anything. And he's standing there with the clothing in his hand. And he's looked at me and he said, oh, I've got to identify it as being Azaria Chamberlain's. And he said, well, these are the colours that Lindy said she was wearing, but uh, the wrong way around, he thought. That was him identifying the grey as being Azaria Chamberlain's. Well, I was a bit staggered by it. Derek Roff and his son arrived and Derek Roff, the head ranger, wanted to know what was going on and Morris told him that I'd found the uh, baby's clothes. And he asked Derek Roff are there any dingo lairs in that area? And he said, yes, he said there could be three to five Anyway, then Morris said, well, you can go back to the camp area now and I'll come and see you later on tonight and get a statement off you. Well, I had to chase them for a couple of days to get a statement because we were leaving, so we didn't hear any more about it till I think it was the following February when I got a summons to appear at Alice Springs for the coroner's inquest. When I went on the stand, I was asked to um, have a look at photos taken by the police, and then they said could I hold up the photo which showed the um, way the clothing was found. And I said well none of these photos show the way the clothing was found and they said well, why not? And I said oh C- Constable Morris picked them up. He said he had to identify them as, as Area Chamberlains and then they called an adjournment and as I was walking out Lindy's, or solicitors, asked me to go into a room there and they said what do you mean Morris picked them up? They said well Did I know that he's denied touching them? Anyway, um, that was sort of the end of that part of it until uh, the trial and the cronial inquest, which I did get to show them how the clothing was found. But when I went to the trial, Barker, who I thought was a very shrewd operator, sat with me and asked me all the questions, asked me all about it. I thought well this is good, he's going to ask me all this when I'm on the stand. Little did I know he was finding out what I knew so he could stop me anywhere with a yes or no answer. It really turned me off the um, legal system. I was quite disappointed in it. In my mind I didn't have any doubt that there was anything but a dingo that had taken it. I think it was great that they fought and fought to get uh, the dingo put on the death certificate. That was a terrific step for them, and I think the coroner at the time realised what a total injustice was carried out. Because at Ayers Rock they were building that resort and they didn't want bad publicity. They didn't want dingoes going around biting people or killing babies.
3: It took nearly four years for a chance find to turn everything around. Azaria's matinee jacket that Lindy says she was wearing when she was taken, but the police claim never existed, was found a distance away, close to a dingo's lair. A week later, Lindy walked free from jail, a royal commission later clearing her name. Forty years on, I asked author John Bryson what lessons Australians should learn from the injustices visited on Lindy and Michael
6: Chamberlain. If we can stay with the belief that private enterprise can ruin the judicial system, then we've got some of the way. By private enterprise, do you mean the media? I mean the media, but also the the scientists involved were employed by a private enterprise group of analysts. And that is why, really... Chamberlain's barrister went back to, after the case, was made a judge in, in Victoria and set up a, uh, a, a governmental system of, uh, of analysts. Forensic
3: analysts. Yes. And if you were to survey those old enough to have had any opinion about the Chamberlain case now, if it was once eighty twenty for Lindy Chamberlain's guilt, what do you think it would be now? I think the reverse... As for former Sydney Morning Herald journalist Malcolm Brown...
4: What good came out of it, the the, the whole trial, was uh, that, yes, it was a lesson to the Australian justice system that things can go horribly wrong, but then the real thing was a wake-up call to forensic science and uh, also a, a caution to the legal fraternity that if you try to have a trial based purely on scientific evidence without any real primary evidence to back it up, then you're running into dangerous territory. You cannot regard science as being the holy grail of criminal justice. You also have to have solid primary evidence. And that also taught us that if the community is saturated with feeling and with ideas about the accused person that there's now a rule where you can opt to be tried by judge alone and that has been applied since. And that is also another reform that's come in.
3: Could it happen again?
4: It could happen again if the scientific evidence is badly flawed as it was in the Chamberlain case.
3: Does the media have the humility to learn any lessons out of the Chamberlain case?
4: (laughs) I... uh, um, I think that uh, yes the uh, in future the, the media might be slower to jump to their own conclusions but uh, on the other hand there is among journalists it tends to be this pack mentality uh, where they get together and the leading personalities within the media pack will dictate what the story is and there's the, the follow on uh, I think that uh, the media the media should well look at the this question of getting around at packs and being dominated by individuals. But beyond that now I think reporters continue to be reporters and and they tend to let their subjective uh, views on things intrude into an objective assessment of facts.
3: And what about the public at large? Do you think that that Australians, who were certainly alive and adult and gossiped about this at the pub or over the back fence, should feel a little shame for the judgments?
4: Yes, I think Australians should feel uh, very ashamed of it because it, it, it ruined the lives of these two people and it had all sorts of other implications with the family life which are still being felt today. The public should be Weary of, of jumping to, to conclusions.
3: What would you say about it in terms of its impact in Australia? Was it the, the most egregious miscarriage of justice you ever saw?
4: Yes it was, it was the most egregious miscarriage mainly because of the, the influence of the mass media because everything was sort of televised, it, was, it went all over the country as with other cases in past history have not been. Yes it was, it was certainly a dreadful indictment of Australians that that should ever have gone as far as it did.
2: It doesn't mean you forget her or your attitude changed towards her. You just learn to live with it, that's all. This episode was written, produced and edited by Ali Aitken. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. I'm Neralda Jacobs. We'll see you next time.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,